today, before we jump into Perpetua and Felicity, and as, as Jerry said, uh, there is a handout there with the complete text of the, uh, the story. And I thought it would be good if we just read it in class or had it read by someone. So Karen Gibbs volunteered to do that. I appreciate that. And we, we will try to get to that in just a few minutes. Um, one of the things that's come up two or three times, and, and not specifically with this story, but just in general I've been thinking about, is this, <clears throat> not really conflict, but this duality between a, an oral tradition and a written tradition. And particularly in the second century, it's really a part of what's going on. And, and I, I made up sort of a silly slide here, but, but it's not so much a question of oral or written. There's a person who had a theory that, that the early church was so dependent on oral tradition that they disliked, or one person said despised written records. And, and I, I don't think that's true at all. These, the, these were a people of the book they were, they were people very much in tune to writings, to writings as a noun and writing as a verb. They, they were, both was part of it. So it's really oral and written, how did they balance? And tried to look up a little bit in first and second century Roman Empire, there is, really some guesses that maybe 10 to 15% of the population were fully literate. And that is they could read and write. That may be a little bit of an underestimate, but not too much. Christians, and there's not any real data on the church, but it's likely that the church and Christians were very typical. And that is only about 10 or 15% of the Christians of the second century that we're looking at could read and write. Um, one of the implications of that is that reading aloud in the worship service became very key to, to learning, very key to knowing the story. And uh, people memorized scripture from hearing it. Uh, you know, Jackie had an uncle, I don't think I ever met, but who was blind from birth and was a preacher. And he had essentially memorized a large portion of scripture from his mother reading to him as a child. Um, this would have been certainly first half of the 20th century, maybe, maybe the first quarter of the 20th century. Um, books, scriptures, particularly early on, the Old Testament scriptures were very important, were, were uh, revered, were read, but again, you know, we talk about 
occasionally, you know, I might tell myself, you need to spend more time reading your Bible. And for, I would venture to say for 100% of the people in this room, that is a choice to go pick up the book off the shelf and sit down and read it. For these people in the first century, that for most of them, for 80%, 85%, that wasn't a choice. If, if you wanted to hear Old Testament scripture, or as we move into the second century, the acceptance of New Testament scripture, then you had to be in a group where it was someone had copies and it was read aloud and, and you could hear it. Um, so it's an interesting difference between us today and and group of Christians in the in the second century that, that we've been looking at. Um, make sure I didn't have any other notes that I wanted to mention. You know, education was important. It it was connected very much with social status. The uh, the wealthy could afford tutors and teachers and, and to have their children educated. Um, the vast majority could not. There's a, a possibility when we start looking at the church as it developed, it's likely that leadership, elders, bishops, deacons even, were educated people. So that sort of makes them kind of a subgroup. Um, if they were able to read and teach, or if, if they were able to, uh, say, for, for some of them, provide a home in which the, for the church to meet, um, all of that put them in a, a social status uh, quite toward the top. But books mattered. Uh, oh, what happened? Did I say something that? <laughs> so while this is coming back up, so today we want to look at a second martyrdom story. Um, Sometimes it's, it's referred to as a, as a passion, uh, the, the way we talk about the, the um, passion week and the crucifixion of Jesus, the, the death. Um, at some places, in a, in a quote I'm going to use, it, it will in fact talk about the passion of Perpetua and Felicity, just meaning their, their death. Um, We don't know very, I don't know what this is going to do. We don't know very much about 
these two women. Um, Um, we can calculate that, that Perpetua was probably born about 182, so we're right at the, the end of the second century. And from records, we know that the, the martyrdom of these two uh, women was in 203. So you can do the arithmetic. Perpetua was about 21 to 22 years old. Young, newly wed, from a well-to-do family. There's no indication that her father was a, a governor or a high official, but some mid-level official. Um, the story that we're gonna look at was more than half, probably, written by Perpetua. So she's in this group of whatever we said, 10, 15% who could read and write. Um, and she had an, an infant. Uh, she was imprisoned in a Roman dungeon because she was a Christian, along with some other members of the church there. Um, and uh, her infant, as we'll see, was there with her for a while and then was taken by some other ladies. Interesting fact, nothing is said about her husband. If we uh, wanted to be nice to him, we, we could say, well, perhaps he was martyred earlier for his faith and, and then they went after his wife. Or if we wanted perhaps to not be so nice, we say, he abandoned her because she was uh, strong in her faith and was making a commitment, and he wasn't willing to do that, so he, but anyhow, we know nothing. We can conjecture, but uh, we don't know anything. Um, this all takes place in Carthage. I, I didn't bring a map today, but remember Carthage is in North Africa. Uh, toward, toward the western end of the, the Mediterranean. Um, Carthage was a major city. At, at this point, perhaps second only to Rome in the sort of western half of the empire. Um, here's a pop quiz. Second, third century BC. We have the Punic Wars famous general who was a Carthaginian? Hannibal. Hannibal, yes. And Hannibal is famous for his strategy, which included uh, taking his army from Spain over the Pyrenees, over the Alps with, with elephants, with war elephants. He, he didn't, he, one, two, or three major battles in Italy, but didn't make it all the way to, to Rome. Uh, and ended up, uh, in the end, being 
being defeated a number of years later, but Hannibal is, is probably one of the greatest strategists of, of all time, really. Um, as we said, part of this story is written by Perpetua. The, the latter part, as you can see when we read through it, uh, is about her death. So it, it, it was not written by her. So she obviously was a well-educated young lady. Uh, and Felicity was a slave who was also a Christian and was in the mix of this, and we'll hear about her story as well. Uh, parts of it, uh, I'll just say, are very graphic and sad uh, for the, the, what happens to these two young women. This was a story that was really preserved. Uh, Tertullian, who we haven't looked at, this ran out of time to go to all these other writers, he probably was involved in preserving this story. He was also a, a North African. Um, but even you know, immediately into the third century and, and into the fourth century, it's a story that was read frequently. And if I can be quiet here and let Karen read, we'll have time. I'll come back at the end to a quote from Augustine from uh, 150 years later or so, uh, also a North African. Um, and Augustine preached sermons on the story of uh, Perpetua and, and Felicity. I've been talking quickly. Questions? So I'm just going to let Karen read the, the story, the, the text that you've got, which I think is a nice translation. It's from the 1970s, so it's, it's modern in that respect. young catechumens were arrested, Robotticus and his fellow slave Felicitas, Saturninus and Secundulus, and with them Didia Perpetua, a newly married woman of good family and upbringing. Her mother and father were still alive, and one of her two brothers was a catechumen like herself. She was about 22 years old and had an infant son at the breast. Now from this point on, the entire account of her ordeal, ordeal is her own, according to her own ideas and the way that she herself wrote it down. While we were still under arrest, my father, out of love for me, was trying to persuade me and shake my resolution. Father, I said, do you see this vase here, for example, or water, pot, or whatever? Yes, I do, said he. And I told him, could it be called by any other name than what it is? And he said, no. Well, so too, I cannot be called anything other than what I am, a Christian. At this, my father was so angered by the word Christian that he moved towards 
between his toes would pluck my eyes out. But he left it at that and departed, vanquished along with his diabolical argument. For a few days afterwards, I gave thanks to the Lord that I was separated from my father and was comforted by his absence. During these few days, I was baptized, and I was inspired by the Holy Spirit not to ask for any other favor after the water but simply the perseverance of the flesh. A few days later, we were lodged in the prison, and I was terrified as I had never been in such a dark hole. What a difficult time it was. With the crowd, the heat was stifling. Then there was the extor extortion of the soldiers, and to crown all, I was tortured with worry for my baby here. Then Tertius and Pomponius, those blessed deacons who tried to take care of it, bribed the soldiers to allow us to go to a better part of the prison to refresh ourselves for a few hours. Everyone then left that dungeon and shifted for himself. I nursed my baby, who was faint from hunger. In my anxiety, I spoke to my mother about the child. I tried to comfort my brother, and I gave the child in their charge. I was in pain because I saw them suffering out of pity for me. These were the trials I had to endure for many days. Then I got permission for my baby to stay with me in prison. At once I recovered my health, relieved as I was of my worry and anxiety over the child. My prison had suddenly become a palace so that I wanted to be there rather than anywhere else. Then my brother said to me, dear sister, you are greatly privileged. Surely you might ask for a vision to discover whether you are to be condemned or free. Faithfully, I promised that I would, for I knew that I could speak with the Lord whose great blessing I had come to experience. And so I said, I shall tell you tomorrow. Then I made my request, and this was the vision I had. I saw a ladder of tremendous height made of bronze reaching all the way to heaven. It was so narrow that only one person could climb up at a time. To the sides of the ladder were attached all sorts of metal weapons. There were swords, spears, hooks, daggers, and spikes, so that if anyone tried to climb up carelessly or without paying attention, he would be mangled and his flesh would adhere to the weapon. At the foot of the ladder lay a dragon of enormous size, and it would attack those who tried to climb up and try to terrify them from doing so. And Satyrus was the first to go up, he who was later to give himself up of his own accord. He had been the builder of our strength, although he was not present when we were arrested. And he arrived at the top of the staircase, and he looked back and said to me, Perpetua, I am waiting for you, but take care, do not let the dragon bite you. He will not harm me, I said, in the name of Christ Jesus. Slowly, as though he were afraid of me, the dragon stuck his head out from underneath the ladder. Then using it as my first step, I trod on his head and went up. Then I saw an immense garden, and in it a gray-haired man sat in shepherd's garb. Tall he was, and looking cheap. And standing around him were many thousands of people clad in white garments. He raised his head, looked at me, and said, I'm glad you've come, my child. He called over me over to him and gave me, as it were, a mouthful of the milk he was drawing, and I took it into my cupped hands and consumed it. And all 
those who stood around said, Amen. At the sound of his word, I came to with the taste of something sweet still in my mouth. I at once told this to my brothers, and we, we realized that we would have to suffer, and that from now on we would no longer have any hope in this life. A few days later, there was a rumor that we were going to be given a hearing. My father also arrived from the city, worn with the earth, and came to see me with the idea of persuading me. Daughter, he said, have pity on my gray head. Have pity on me, your father, if I deserve to be called your father. If I have favored you above all your brothers, if I have raised you to reach this prime of your life, do not abandon me to be the reproach of men. Think of your brothers. Think of your mother and your aunt. Think of your child who will not be able to live once you are gone. Give up your pride. You will destroy all of us. None of us will ever be able to speak freely again if anything happens to you. This was the way my father spoke out of love for me, kissing my hands and throwing himself down before me. <coughs> With tears in his eyes, he no longer addressed me as his daughter, but as a woman. I was sorry for my father's sake because he alone of all my kin would be unhappy to see me suffer. I tried to cover him, saying, it will all happen in the prisoner's dock as God wills, for you may be sure that we are not left to ourselves, but are all in his power. And he left me with great sorrow. One day while we were eating breakfast, we were suddenly hurried off for a hearing. We arrived at the forum, and straight away the story went about the neighborhood near the forum and a huge crowd gathered. We walked up to the prisoner's dock. All the others were questioned, admitted their guilt. Then, when it came my turn, my father appeared with my son, dragged me from the step and said, perform the sacrifice, have pity on your baby. Hilarianus, the governor, who had received his judicial powers as the successor of the late proconsul, Demetrius, said to me, have pity on your father's gray head, have pity on your infant son, offer the sacrifice for the welfare of the infant. I will not, I retorted. Are you a Christian, said Valerianus? And I said, yes, I am. When my father persisted in trying to persuade me, Valerianus ordered him to be thrown to the ground and beaten with the rod. I felt sorry for father just as if I myself had been beaten. I felt sorry for his pathetic old age. Then Hilarianus passed sentence on all of us. We were condemned to the beasts, and we returned to prison in high spirits. But my baby had got used to being nursed at the breast and to staying with me in prison. So I sent the deacon, Pomponius, straight away to my father to ask for the baby. The father refused to give him over, but as God willed, the baby had no further desire for the breast, nor did I suffer any inflammation. And so I was relieved of any anxiety for my child and of any discomfort in my breast. Some days later, an adjutant named Prudens, who was in charge of the prison, began to show us great honor, realizing that we possessed some great power within us. And he began to allow many visitors to see us for our mutual now the day of the confidence was approaching, and my father came to see me overwhelmed with sorrow. He started tearing the hairs from his 
himself on the ground and began to curse his old age and to say such words as a, as a new multiplication. I felt sorry for his unhappy old age. The day before we were to fight with the beasts, I saw the following vision. Pomponius the deacon came to the prison gate and began to knock violently. I went out and opened the gate for him. He was dressed in an unbelted white tunic, wearing elaborate sandals, and he said to me, Perpetua, come, we are waiting for you. Then he took my hand and we began to walk through rough and broken country. At last we came to the amphitheater, out of breath, when he led me into the center of the arena. Then he told me, do not be afraid, I am here struggling with you. Then he left. I looked at the enormous crowd who lodged in astonishment. I was surprised that no beasts were let loose on me, for I knew that I was condemned to die by the beasts. Then out came an Egyptian against me, of vicious appearance, together with his seconds, to fight with me. There also came up to me some handsome young man, men to be my seconds and assistants. My clothes were stripped off, and suddenly I was a man. My seconds began to rub me down with oil, as they are wont to do before a contest. Then I saw the Egyptian on the other side rolling in the dust. Next, there came forth a man of marvelous stature, such that he rose above the top of the amphitheater. He was clad in a beltless purple tunic with two stripes, one on either side, running down the middle of his chest. He wore sandals that were wondrously made of gold and silver and he carried a wand like an athletic trainer and a green branch on which there were golden apples. When he asked for silence, he said, if this Egyptian defeats her, he will slay her with the sword. But if she defeats him, she will receive this branch. Then he withdrew. We drew close to one another and began to let our fists fly. My opponent tried to get hold of my feet, but I kept striking him in the face with the heels of my feet. Then I was raised up into the air, and, and I began to pummel him without, as it were, touching the ground. Then when I noticed there was a lull, I put my two hands together, linking the fingers of one hand with those of the other, and thus I got hold of his head. He fell flat on his face, and I stepped on his head. The crowd began to shout, and my assistant started to sing a song. Then I walked up to the trainer kissed me and said to me, Peace be with you, my brother. I began to walk in triumph towards the gate of life. Then I awoke. I realized that it was not with wild animals that I would fight, but with the devil. But I knew that I would win the victory. So much for what I did up until the eve of the contest. About what happened at the contest itself, let him write of it. Here, Satyrus tells the story of a vision he had of Perpetua and himself after they were killed, being carried by four angels into heaven where they were reunited with other martyrs killed in the same persecution. Such were the remarkable visions of these martyrs, Satyrus and Perpetua, written by themselves. As for Secundulus, God called him from this world earlier than the others while he was still in prison by a special grace that he might not have to face the animals. Yet his flesh, if not his spirit, knew the sword. As for Felicitas, 
she too enjoyed the Lord's favor in this wise. She had been pregnant when she was arrested and was now in her eighth month. As the day of the spectacle drew near, she was very distressed that her martyrdom would be postponed because of her pregnancy. For it is against the law for a woman with child to be executed. Thus, she might have to shed her holy, innocent blood afterward along with others who were common criminals. Her comrades in martyrdom were also sad. <clears throat> for they were afraid that they would have to leave behind so fine a companion to travel alone on the same road to hope. And so, two days before the contest, they poured forth a prayer to the Lord in one torrent of common grief. And immediately after their prayer, the birth pains came upon her. She suffered a good deal in her labor because of the natural difficulties of an eight months' delivery. Hence, one of the assistants of the prison guards said to her, You suffer so much now. What will you do when you are tossed to the beast? Little did you think of them when you refused to sacrifice. What I am offering now, she replied, I suffer by myself. But then another will be inside me who will suffer for me, just as I shall be suffering for him. Then she gave birth to a girl, and one of the sisters brought her up as her own daughter. Therefore, since the Holy Spirit has permitted the story of this contest to be written down, and by so permitting has willed it, we shall carry out the command, or indeed, the commission of the most saintly perpetua, however unworthy I might be to add anything to this glorious story. At the same time, I shall add one example of her perseverance and nobility to God. The military tribune had treated them with extraordinary severity because on the information of certain very foolish people, he became afraid that they would be spirited out of the prison by magical spells. Petra spoke to him directly. Why do you not even allow us to refresh ourselves properly? For we are the most distinguished of the condemned prisoners, seeing that we belong to the emperor. We are to fight on his very birthday. Would it not be to your credit if we were brought forth on the day in healthier condition? The officer became disturbed and grew red. So it was that he gave the order that they were to be more that they were to be more humanely treated, and he allowed her brothers and other persons to visit so that the prisoners could dine in their company. By this time, the adjutant who was head of the jail was himself a Christian. On the day before, when they had their last meal, which is called the free banquet, they celebrated not a banquet, but rather a love feast. They spoke to the mob with the same steadfastness, warned them of God's judgment, stressing the joy they would have in their suffering, and ridiculing the curiosity of those that came to see them. The satirist said, Will not tomorrow be enough for you? Why are you so eager to see something that you dislike? Our friends today will be our enemies on the morrow. So take careful note of what we look like, so that you will recognize, as, recognize us on the day. Thus, everyone would depart from the prison in amazement, and many of them began to the day of their victory dawned, and they marched from the prison to the amphitheater joyfully, as though they were going to heaven, with calm faces, trembling, if at all, with joy, rather than fear. Perpetua went along with shining countenance and calm step, as the beloved of God and as a wife of Christ, putting down everyone's stare by her own intense glance. 
With them was also Felicitas, glad that she had safely given birth, so that now she could fight the beast. Going from one blood, <coughs> going from one blood bath to another, from the midwife to the gladiator, ready to wash after childbirth in the second baptism. They were then led up to the gates, and the men were forced to put on the robes of priests and staggered. The women, the dress of the priestess of Ceres, but the noble Perpetua strenuously resisted this to the end. We came to this of our own free will, that our freedom should not be violated. We agreed to pledge our lives, provided that we would do no such thing. You would grieve with us to do this. Even in justice, recognize justice. <clears throat> military tribune agreed. They were to be brought into the arena just as they were. <clears throat> Perpetua then began to sing a song. She was already treading on the head of the Egyptian, Revocatus Saturninus, and Saturus began to warn the onlooking mob. Then when they came within sight of Hilarion, they suggested by their motions and gestures, you have condemned us, but God will condemn you, was what they were saying. At this, the crowd became enraged and demanded that they be scourged before a line of gladiators. And they rejoiced at this because they had obtained a share in the Lord's sufferings. But he who said, ask and you shall receive, answered their prayer by giving each one the death they had asked for. For whenever they would discuss among themselves their desire for martyrdom, Santorinus, indeed, insisted that he wanted to be exposed to all the different beasts, that his crown might be all the more glorious. And so at the outset of the contest, he and Robotacus were matched with a leopard, and then while in the stocks, <coughs> they were attacked by a bear. As for Satyrus, he dreaded nothing more than a bear, and he counted on being killed by one bite of a leopard. Then he was matched with a wild boar, but the gladiator who had tied him to the animal was gored by the boar and died a few days after the contest, whereas Satyrus was only dragged along. Then when he was bound in the stocks awaiting the bear, the animal refused to come out of cages so that Satyrus was called back once more unhurt. For the young women, however, the devil had prepared a mad effort. This was an unusual animal it was chosen that their sex might be matched with that of the beast. <clears throat> so they were stripped naked, placed in nets, and thus brought out into the arena. Even the crowd was horrified when they saw that one was a delicate young girl, and the other was a woman fresh from childbirth, with the milk still dripping from her breast. And so they were brought back again and dressed in unbelted tunics. First the heifer tossed Perpetua, and she fell on her back. Then sitting up, she pulled down the tunic that was ripped along the side so that it covered her thighs, thinking more of her modesty than her pain. Next, she asked for a pen to fasten her untidy hair, for it was not right that a martyr should die with her hair in disorder, lest she might seem to be mourning in her hour of triumph. When she got up, and seeing that Felicitas had been crushed to the ground, she went over to her, gave her hand, her hand and lifted her. Then the two stood side by side, but the cruelty of the mob was by now appeased, and so they were called back to the gate of life. There, Perpetua was, was held up by a man 
named Josephus, who was at the time a catechumen and kept close to her. She woke from a kind of sleep, so absorbed she had been in ecstasy and the spirit. And she began to look about her. Then to the amazement of all, she said, when are we going to be thrown to that heifer or whatever it is? When told this had already happened, she refused to believe it until she noticed the marks of her rough experience on her person and her dress. Then she called for her brother and spoke to him together with the catechumens and said, you must all stand fast in faith and love one another and do not be weakened by what we've gone through. At another gate, Satyrus was earnestly addressing the soldier students it is exactly, he said, as I foretold and predicted. So far, not one animal has touched him. So now you may believe me with all your heart. I am going in there, and I shall be finished off with one bite of the leopard. And immediately as the contest was coming to a close, a leopard was let loose. And after one bite, Satyrus was so drenched with blood that he came away, the mob roared, that as he came away, the mob roared and witnessed to his second baptism. Well washed, well washed. For well washed indeed was one who had been bathed in this manner. Then he said to the soldier of Pudens, Goodbye, remember me, and remember the faith. These things should not disturb you, but rather strengthen you. And with this, he asked Pudens for a ring from his finger and dipping it into the wound, he gave it back to him again as a pledge and as a record of his bloodshed. Shortly after, he was thrown unconscious with the rest of the usual, in the usual spots where his throat cut. But the mob asked that their bodies be brought out in the open, that their eyes might be guilty witnesses of the sword that pierced their flesh. And so the martyrs got up and went to the spot of their own accord, and the people, as the people wanted them to. And kissing one another, they sealed their martyrdom with the ritual the others took the sword in silence and without moving, especially Satyrus, who being the first to climb the stairway was the first to die. For once again he was waiting for perpetual perpetuus, however, had yet to taste more pain. She screamed as she was struck upon the bone. Then she took the trembling hand of the young gladiator and guided it to her throat. It was as though so great a woman Feared as she was by the unclean spirit, could not be dispatched unless she herself were willing. Ah, most valiant and blessed martyrs, truly are you called and chosen for the glory of Christ Jesus our Lord. And any man who exalts, honors, and worships his glory should read for the consolation of the church these new deeds of heroism, which are no less significant than the tales of old. For these new manifestations of virtue will bear witness to one and the same spirit who still operates, and to God the Father Almighty, to his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom his splendor and immeasurable power for all ages. Amen. <coughs> hey, a difficult story to read. Let me just finish with a, with a quote from, uh, from Augusta. Therefore, perhaps, 
we should let the ancient voices themselves tell us how the early church treasured its holy daughters. Around 200 years after the martyrdom, the great bishop Augustine of Hippo preached three sermons to commemorate the sacrifice of Vibia Perpetua. Vibia was her father's name. And her slave turned comrade, Felicity. Each year on the anniversary of their deaths, the passion was read aloud to many African congregations. On one occasion after the public reading, Augustine described for his flock how the two female martyrs achieved a level of courage and virtue that few men could ever hope to match. All those things, he says about the women's heroic deeds, recounted in such glowing words, we perceived with our ears and actually saw with our minds. We honored them with our devotion and praised them with love. What could be more glorious than these women whom men can more easily admire than imitate? <laughs> or if we long for a tribute even more simple than this, we can recall the words engraved on a stone from the ancient Carthaginian church where the martyrs' remains were kept. The engraving reads, Perpetua, sweetest daughter. These three words poignantly remind us of the cherished woman who left behind the family of Vibius to join the family of God. We've run out of time. Is it I known where her, where her uh, remains are today? It's, I, I don't know what has become of this Carthaginian church. Um, don't know. Remember, next week, come back with your questions. If, if you've got a <clears throat> specific thing, you know, oh, I wish I had asked this, or I wish we had spent more time talking about this, please come back, and um, <coughs> I'm sure I can speak for Jerry that he and I will both be very happy to talk very little and let let you uh, talk well, I've about. I've got a lot planned for next week. Oh, you do? No, I don't. Donuts? <laughs> no, I don't. Donuts. Oh, donuts. Yeah. Can you be in charge of the donuts? Oh, that's true. <laughs> All right, we might have done that. I think that's an excellent suggestion. So. Very good.